You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I appreciate you uh, joining uh, joining me uh, this morning for something that I've been, I, I'm wrestling with. I'm wrestling, uh, well, not just with the certainty of death, but uh, how we make sense of it. Um, and how we uh, how we think about it, and then um, trying to frame it in the context of the larger sort of Western inheritance that we have. Um, that that's what led me to this subject. Open with a word of prayer. Our Father, thank you that we can gather once more on our journey on this earth uh, together to worship you as you've appropriated the time, and pray that we. Um, we are clear-minded and rightly divide your word and always sensitive to people who, who don't believe uh, or are not where we are in our faith, but knowing that they are your creation as well. And we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, so last week, uh, you know, it is kind of, Funny, when I picked this topic earlier in the fall, uh, I did not know I was going to be teaching it in the weeks leading up to Christmas. Uh, I thought it was going to be a little bit earlier. So it's, I, you know, I don't know how we fit Socrates and Islam into the hope of the Incarnation, but we're going to try. It, it's, not a, it's not a Christmas card. I, hang tight. Um, the... Uh, um, but yeah, it's it, it's not exactly a Hallmark card, you know. Best wishes, Socrates, <laughs> Muhammad, and Christ. Uh, I guess it could be in today's world. But where we uh, where we left off, I want to do a quick review of, of where we were with uh, with Socrates before we uh, move to the question of Islam and. Um, with Socrates, uh, I did a little history on him last week. We won't rehearse that, but he left us with with two, two or three points uh, takeaways. One, uh, that the pursuit of wisdom. He, he's that paradigm of ancient philosophy, in the pursuit of wisdom. You know, oh Socrates, he, he was an annoyance. He questioned, and the pursuit of wisdom and truth was always connected to virtue. How can we be good? How can we know the truth? How do we get at it? How do we have an, uh, how do we develop an understanding that leads us to a worthy life and a life worth living? This was very different from other uh, teachers of his time in the fourth century, fifth century BC, because uh, often knowledge was in, in, in language and the study of what we would call the liberal arts or the humanities, uh, philosophy. It was designed for power. How do you get power? How do you acquire things? How do you conquer your environment. Um, that is, um, uh, Socrates uh, positioned himself against that and said, no, 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 the, the, the pursuit of wisdom is the pursuit of truth to the good life. And, uh, and then, uh, but, but the way he understood that good life was a, a kind of intellectual apprehension. You, you got it. You, it was almost like a conversion. You came out of the cave, as Plato says in the Republic. In the words of Socrates, you come out of the cave, you, you were illuminated, you realize that justice and beauty and truth and honor and virtue all are connected to something permanent and, and more real than this temporary sort of physical world we're in. 
Well, it should sound familiar to us. It's had a long, long history in our uh, Western world. It's had a long, long wrestling match in the history of the church, starting with the early fathers, because it really does seem to anticipate what the Bible completes. And what I suggested last week, the Bible completes this by showing us that wisdom has an object. Wisdom, there's a source and an object of wisdom. It's not simply a rational participation. It's actually a thing. It's God. It's Christ. It's the wisdom of God in Christ for our salvation that makes foolishness of the wisdom of the world. So you kind of feel like Socrates might have been an interesting guy to talk to because uh, he, he would have shared so many close parallels with how we teach our children to be good. <laughs> but then what's the object of that good? And that to me is tied to the question that uh, sort of framed the subject, which is the question of death. The one, the one sure thing, right? The one sure thing that, that frankly, with all the beauty and hope and fun of Christmas, I mean, that's it. It's, it's the one sure thing that we, we look to, to to guarantee we don't have to fear it. Um, and Socrates' understanding of death, uh, just in summary, was is is could be framed in two ways. And I gave a passage last week uh, from one of uh, a dialogue called the Apology, where Plato records his trial and his execution. Socrates saw death as one of two things: either it was nothing, just a loss of consciousness, he, he's like being in a sleep, a dreamless sleep, is what he calls. It. Or it's this incredible journey where you're going to run into all kinds of people, souls, right? And Socrates conceived of death this way. Um, And he was very hopeful. There's a famous image uh, that I'll I'll show you. This is a a famous image um, by Jacques-Louis David in 1787, just before the French Revolution. uh, that here's Plato looking away as Socrates takes the cup of hemlock uh, and his disciples are around him there. Um, uh, this is after his trial and he's pointing heavenward, right? He's pointing heavenward. He's excited to go. And what I tried to contrast that with last week was uh, the Garden of Gethsemane before the death of Christ. Christ is not excited, <laughs> He weeps tears of blood, uh, as we famously know from the stories. And uh, Christ looked at death as an aberration, a monster, the ultimate beast that had to be slayed. He knew that death was serious. I'm not saying Socrates didn't think it was serious. But Christ understood that the object of death was sin that had to be conquered and thus Resurrection, new hope, new life. So that's the contrast I'm trying to draw with the wisdom of philosophy is that death has an object and the object is resurrection for the Christian. Um, and that's where we left off, if that's a good summary of kind of where we, we left things last week. Wisdom, virtue, death have an object for the Christian. And, and when we look at how uh, other people have wrestled with these things uh, and how they've infiltrated our culture. Uh, you know, if, I, if, I, if I just live a good life, I'll have a good death. Well, there is no good death. 
Death is bad. That's why we're here this morning. Because we believe not only is it bad, it's been conquered. It's been overcome by a gracious act of God. So that's the problem, as I conceived it, with philosophy and, and, and the ancient world. Well, now I want to turn to Islam. And Islam, uh, of course, just real quickly, uh, this is our uh, the, the starting point for understanding Islam is this peninsula. I mean, you must understand that Islam doesn't exist apart from Arabia. And it's a it, if you had a map of the ancient world and could and could stretch it out, Arabia is almost dead in the middle between Europe and Asia, and North Africa, at these trade routes that would have connected these ancient cultures. And this, of course, is the home of Muhammad in Mecca. He's born in the year 570. He's born in the year 570. He, at 40 years old, in the year 610, he has an experience. Uh, uh, well, he had the experience, actually. There's ancient Mecca, by the way, uh, after Islam. Okay, so the, the minarets are already there. So Islam has already been established. Here's a modern shot of Mecca. Um, and uh, you, can, uh, you can see the Kaaba, uh, which is a source of pilgrimage right here. Um, but you see how mountainous it is? Um, Muhammad's experience was actually on this mountain uh, right here, Jabal al-Nur. Um, and you can see the pilgrims. They're like little ants in white going up to the top of the cave where Muhammad had this experience with the angel Gabriel, according to the Quran, where Gabriel began to... Uh, well, he gave the very first message of Islam, the most important message of Islam, the confession. Allah is one and Muhammad is his prophet. That's where this happened. So it's a sacred site for Muslims. And so uh, this message then, of course, was continued between 610 and Muhammad's death in 632. It was, uh, there was a series of these revelations that we today call the Quran. Quran, recitations is the thing, is the, is the now, um, the, I'm sorry, the verb, Quran, to recite. Quran is the collection of recitations. And uh, again, in an abbreviated form, uh, this message is, uh, it takes time, but uh, b between Mecca and Muhammad's journey to Medina and settling in that area north of there, Yatrib, uh, a slow theocracy begins to emerge out of the Muslim uh, religious world that eventually, <laughs> well, by the year 630, has taken over most of that peninsula. So 20 years. Um, and that is the worse than Cliff Notes version of the spread of early <laughs> Islam. But that's not the subject today. I just, trust me, it happened. <laughs> um, and, and this is where it happened. And, of course, just through the, you can see then the growth of Mecca as a spiritual center. Um, that's the very early Middle Ages. Um, it, it is a shrine. And then today it remains a shrine, uh, a sacred space, one, a place of pilgrimage. Well, 
what, what does all this have to do with the, the problem of death for Islam? That's where I want to spend the remainder of our time. And then I want to try to, again, draw a contrast with, a, a quick contrast with Christianity. And then next week I'd like to, in, in the final sort of chapter, uh, wrap up uh, this idea of the, the day of judgment, resurrection, um, and hope as it ties together in these three, three forms of thinking. Uh, with more, a little more biblical uh, meat to it. According to Islamic doctrine, between the moment of death and the burial ceremony, the spirit of a deceased Muslim takes a journey to heaven or hell. Uh, sorry, heaven and hell, wrong conjunction. To see, to behold a vision of bliss and a vision of torture that awaits us at the end of our days. So that's the very first thing that happens at death, is you're given uh, a picture of what eternity looks like, both in terms of uh, paradise or, or pain and, and suffering. As the body is prepared for burial, the spirit returns to earth and observes the preparations and even accompanies the, the body to the cemetery. Uh, to the place of burial. So there is a witness uh, to uh, what's happening to your, your body. Your soul now has been removed. The process of which, by the way, is described in very painful terms <laughs> as the soul does not want to let go of the body. Um, and just before the body is buried, just at the, before the, at the point of burial, the soul then reunites with the body, the spirit returns and dwells inside the body. Okay. So spirit and body are together now as they're put in the grave. It is a composite. You're a composite of spirit and corpse. That is how a, a Muslim understands the deceased. When this happens, you encounter two, uh, I, I think, relatively terrifying angels. Okay. Two, uh, their, their names are Munkar, Munkar, and Nakir. Here's an ancient manuscript that tries to picture them. Um, based on the descriptions I've read, they, that, those look kind of nice uh, because they're described as blue in the face with huge teeth and wild hair. So... Like Braveheart, I don't know, but yeah, I don't know, but uh, but that's a that's from like an eighth century manuscript uh, that that you know sort of nice artifact that, that of the Quran that tries to capture them. These two angels, Munkar and Nakir, uh, now uh, visit you in the grave. They're appointed by Allah to question, to question the dead, to test your faith. Okay. Righteous believers answer correctly. Right? Righteous believers answer correctly. And thus, peace and comfort are theirs. A sinner, the unrighteous, well, you can see where this is going. They do not answer correctly, and punishment ensues. It, it, it's actually, uh, I, I should pause here. Because what I'm describing to you is only, there's only brief allusions to this in the Quran. 
most of what I'm describing here comes in the century or two after, and it's interpretive material. Midrash is what the Jews would call it for the for the Old Testament law, right? It's interpretive material on this. Okay, so it's development of this idea over time. Uh, the earth begins to weigh down upon a sentient body, a corpse that is aware that this weight of earth is coming down on them. Uh, this uh, this interpretive material describes the rib cage collapsing. I'm sorry. And worms begin to nibble away at the flesh, causing horrible pain. Merry, merry, merry Christmas to everybody. Um, the torture does not continue indefinitely. It occurs intermittently. Uh, and it ends only with the resurrection, uh, which I'll talk more about next week, when God, he may forgive the Muslims, who endured this punishment? He may not. Okay, so that's the that's the um, that's the Muslim interpretation of how death happens. There's actually a process involved, right? Muslim, you can escape the torture of this 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 experience uh, one way. There's one sure way, and the Quran is clear, and that is by martyrdom. Martyrdom, dying a death as a witness to the truth. Okay? To be clear, martyrdom is, in Islamic tradition has developed over time. It's not static. So you do have martyrs who drown. Martyrs, there's actually martyrs who, a building could collapse on you and you could be a martyr. You could die in a fire. So it's not just jihad or battle, even though jihad or struggle or, or conflict is the most noble way to die a martyr. What happens to the martyr is that immediately after death, your spirit does not return to your corpse. Okay, you enter paradise. But let me be clear. Paradise is not paradise as we understand it in the book of Revelation in an eschatological sense. It's, it's the Garden of Eden. It's the Garden of Eden. Um, you, uh, you receive new bodies. You're perfect. You enjoy the rewards of martyrdom, which include a lot of physical pleasures. Um, and uh, it is this, of course, where you can see that offers a great deal of consolation for our Muslim friends in the Middle East who live in a culture of violence. Um, it is a, it's a daily sort of awareness of what a noble death, a martyr's death, can, uh, can achieve for you. So you, as a martyr, would not be visited by the two angels uh, who would then, uh, you know, with their blue faces, tell, show you these horrible visions of what, what could happen to you. Yes, ma'am? Yes, it just, it just takes longer, right? So yeah, through martyrdom you bypass it. That's exactly right. It's the express lane <laughs> to the to, to the Garden of Eden. Okay. So there are three terms. There are three terms I, I would have us uh, consider. I'll, I'll just pause there. That's a lot. Um, that that's good. Are there any other clarifications or questions? Yes, ma'am. In a way, it sounds like the Catholics are copying purgatory. Okay, so it is, and I'm about to. 
Yes, ma'am. There, so there are three terms I'm about to show you that I think will help support your understanding of purgatory. Yeah. Yes, sir. Guys, it's always been my impression that, that the, the genesis of Islam, the culture he lived in at the time and all, yeah. involved a lot of syncretism. Yes. Did, uh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm kind of wondering to what extent that was a, a real factor to That's start good. with and then, and then even afterwards. That's good. How, how much? Sure. Syncretism is the is the question. So the melding of all these different uh, re well, remember where I showed you geographically Arabia is it, it's at a crossroads uh, between east and west. Uh, here's Mecca, here's Medina, there's Jerusalem and Damascus, and there's the Byzantine Empire, which was Christian. There, this would have been largely Byzantine, would have been not largely. Uh, there's no doubt Mecca is at a crossroads. And there is, and that syncretism was part of Arabian culture before Muhammad, pre-Islamic Arabia. So if you look here, and you see the Kaaba, that large black onyx box that you may have seen through just growing up in books or on the media, uh, it's part of pilgrimage. That was actually actually a syncretistic uh, worship site where the the totems or idols of various Arabian tribes were kept. And one of the things Muhammad did when he conquered Mecca was to clean that thing out. And for the one God, it's empty now, we symbolically. Left the meteorite, right? meteorite still there, and please don't ask me to interpret the meteorite. I don't know what the meteorite means. There is a meteorite. Okay. Um, uh, but to your point about syncretism, uh, if you read the Quran, you have constant references to Judaism, Christianity, and even it, sound, it looks like possibly animistic references. But the point being, Islam is a correction to those. Right? So I do, yeah. Yes? Why are they trying to get back to Arnavina? Why is that their idea of heaven would be going So, Muslims believe that the Jewish revelation, what we would call the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible, is corrupted that there's truth in it, but it's been distorted by the Jews who have made Islam an exclusive religion. I'm going to say more about that in a moment. The, likewise, they believe the New Testament is corrupted by Christians who made Jesus a god. So Muhammad is a final spokesperson for God who has come as a correction, a final prophet and a final word. Point being, images and ideas from both of our testaments are present in Islam. But they're changed to meet other kinds of meaning. And the Garden of Eden is probably the closest thing we have to a vision of paradise. Uh, if, if you don't believe that paradise is actually, and this is part of what I want to talk about next week, a new heaven and a new earth, which is what our scriptures teach, our church teaches, that it is a recreation. And hopefully, I think I'll get to this today, that's precisely what Christ is. He's not just an Adam, he's a second Adam. That's absent in Islam. So I think they're going for the 
closest metaphor we have or image we have of blessedness. So let me let me push on here real real quick. Three terms uh, that are that are worth knowing for Christmas. Uh, <laughs> Barzak, Sijin, and Ilyan. Barzak is, uh, it, it's, this is where the deceased and the living are entirely separated from each other. And it, I think there is a purgatory-ish yeah, vision there. Okay, um, It's the whole period between death and the day of resurrection. Sheol in, in, in Hebrew. Um, Islam believes that before the resurrection... And in the day of judgment, like I, as I just said, you, in Barzakh, you either live in distress or you live in comfort and peace. Um, this is the abode of Barzakh. Uh, the life is a, it's, it's either paradise or it's hell, this spiritual awareness. Um, and what determines whether you live in is whether you've been naughty or nice. Uh, I'm sorry if that was dismissive of the complexity of this theology, but it's true. It's whether you've been good or bad. The atmospheric conditions are determined by how you have lived in relationship to the law, to the truth. Okay. Uh, Again, this is a development of teaching from the Quran about the 8th century. So it's, it's, it's interpretive teaching from the caliphs and the imams. Uh, it has over time become elevated to the status of dogma. Just to, uh, a parallel in our own faith. The Trinity is something that had to develop as an articulated uh, uh, understanding of who God is. You see? Or the, the full humanity of Christ and the full divinity of Christ. That's the parallel I would draw with this teaching in their world. It's there in some elemental form, but it's sculpted into a kind of doctrine over several hundred years. That makes sense. Okay. Um, so it, it, the, the tradition actually, as I, I kind of gave you some of the graphic images that the tradition seizes on, um, and uh, they're not they're not pretty. The other place to think about is Sijin, which is what I, I think this is a, this is our understanding of hell. This is the lowest level of the earth where the soul can be kept. And then Ilion would be the parallel of heaven or paradise. Okay. Uh, again, the Quran is peppered with references to death and the afterlife. And I'm not going to go through um, um, each, each verse here as a, as a type of support. Uh, but ultimately, death is in Allah's hands. Uh, it is a promise to us. It is a natural process. Okay? Um, and I want to hold that thought because I, I don't think Christian teaching can support death as a natural, as ontologically, as, as, a, as, as our being, as something natural to our being. Physically and chemically, I, organically, I think we understand it. But in terms of our being itself, it's a violation. It's a, it's a, it's the ultimate violation, because it is a very assault on the image of God in us. Um, now, to 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 a few more uh, a few more points here. 
Islam rejects the Christian concept of mediation. At the center of it is pers- of, of Islamic teaching is personal, sal- uh, personal responsibility for salvation. You are responsible. You're morally free and a responsible agent in how you respond to truth and the law. There is no mediation. Nothing intercedes between a sinner and God. Salvation is earned and it is deserved. Where do we, where do we find uh, the message? We find the message through Allah of how we live in response to it. This is the opportunity of how we come to be saved. There is no crucifixion or cross that mediates grace. This is so key to what divides billions of people. And it's the center of what we're doing. There's no cross. There's no mediation. It is an ascension to truth. It's a realization of truth that God is one, Muhammad is his prophet, and then living the life accordingly. In this sense, and I want to be careful here, like I said about Socratic wisdom, it's an aha, it's a conversion, it's a realization. Right? Now, in, in the Socratic world, in the world of philosophy, this realization is, is moral wisdom, it's virtue, it's truth, it's, it's, the, it's the recognition that permanent universal things must exist for, these thi- for all the intransient things of life to matter. In Islam, it's a theological realization. It's a theological uh, revelation of how to live rightly. Okay? So sin is not a concept in in Islam the way it is uh, for Christians. What we need more than anything else to live, to die a good death, is, is right living. And that's what a prophet is for. It's to show us, to guide us. A prophet, and the prophet Muhammad in particular, is a paradigm. A paradigm, a pattern of living. Martyrs are super, are supermodels of this divine message. Right? They share a special responsibility in delivering this divine message of how to live rightly. So, Muhammad is not a god. There is no incarnational vision. Muhammad is a paradigm of right living that pleases God. The message is, in many ways, and if you you can look at various Muslim sources, they'll say it's practical. It's practical. You You can get out all this... The baggage of sin, of I'm sorry, of um, not sin, but incarnation and grace and mediation and atonement, because ultimately, it's a it's a message that can be copied. It can be duplicated. You see, we can never duplicate the work of Christ. We can only assent to it in mercy and grace. Islam says that's your problem. We can show you how to live without having to take that added step, that, that step you've added. What Jesus did according to Christian doctrine was unique. His life and, and work and death. It's not possible for us to copy it. And this, says Muslims, says Islam, I should say, 
is misleading. Muhammad was not God. He is a model or a paradigm of humanity. And that orients us to the right kind of death. We, we, we die, says, says Muslim. Prophets are living examples of the divine message. And by being so, you, you, they, uh, they help create other examples. And martyrs become the full example of the divine message and the embodiment of, of the will of God. So summing up, and then well, time for questions. For Islam, life is a test which ends in death, but it does not mark the end of our existence. Once death arrives, our opportunity to do good and be good ceases. It's too late. Our deeds are then weighed accordingly. I'll say more about that next week. Allah has created us, that, so we are responsible for our actions by granting us freedom of choice and the intelligence to discern right and wrong. And therefore, we approach the afterlife according to the good we have done and the rewards we deserve. Otherwise, Allah would be contradicted in his justice. Now, I don't... I, I want to open this up for... Discussion, but before we do that, I, I I just want to contrast what I've described here as a non. I'm not a. My degree is in Western religious history and thought, for whatever a degree is worth. And that, I mean, I mean, I'm glad to have it, but I mean at the same time, I mean you know I'm not a scholar of Muslim Islamic the- theology. Um, I I dabble, um, but um, let me let me just. Read something closer to home to try to set up the contrast for next week that I think is at the heart of the season we're in. Romans uh, chapter 5, verse 12 and following. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. It's a loaded passage that you spend months talking about. It's It's one of the most studied passages in New Testament scholarship, what exactly it means. But just to take it as a point of contrast, um, Paul, at the center of Pauline theology, is the mediation. Is that, and as we'll see in just here in 1 Corinthians, it's that Christ came to undo and correct something that was there in the paradigm of Adam, the, the mark of Adam, the mark of creation through sin. Um, so Christianity does not leave us with the hope that we can simply choose and do right 
Um, that's not a hope, actually. That's a condemnation <laughs> under the law. Okay? Um, uh, uh, now, and, and then 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through uh, 26. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the first of the harvest, the first of a type. For as man came by death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. There's a divine logic there that I want to launch from next week that God, this, that it is not, we are not left to our own devices. That the very, that death and resurrection have actually been redefined completely by the work of Christ. That's the center of the Christian faith. That is it. That is your hope. Any, 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 any questions or, yes, ma'am? Right. And the way we believe. Now you deal. Now these are people sitting down making decisions that affect all of us. We were once a complete Christian country. Many of our leaders go to the negotiation table, and we have lost all of that. They don't know what we're talking about. That side of the world, when they jettison their beliefs and their religion, now you've got them at the negotiation table. For everything that we owe and everything they want and everything right. we buy. How is this going to go? <laughs> You've got well, you have ten seconds. I can answer. No, I, I, I don't know how to answer that. So. <laughs> right. Right. Well, let. Right. So. Right. Right. Well, nobody believes in anything, and it's all secular. Where are we all going? <laughs> so, it's complex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any anybody else? <laughs> I, I was just wondering about yeah. the the fact that uh, so he's in a cave, and the archangel Gabriel comes yeah. and gives yeah. him this revelation in secret. Yeah, there's no there are no witnesses, so, which is again a contrast with scripture. The ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, yep. and there are hundreds upon hundreds of witnesses to everything that he said and did. That's right. Multiple sources that were contemporaneous that wrote it all down. To, to what extent That's right. do you see Islam is having a, a, a similar origin to say that of Mormonism right. and Joseph Smith and, right. and this other angel in the golden tablets and all that stuff. It just it just sure. seems like a really stark contrast. So it is a stark contrast. And both are, are essentially cultic. Let's, let's be, if I could rephrase it, Christianity, the proclamation of Christianity is public from the beginning. It is it is uh, multifaceted. That's why we have four testimonies to the life of Christ. I, again, there's a divine logic there. I don't, why don't we have twelve? I don't know. 
I, uh, four is enough. <laughs> um, so there, there, an important contrast you draw without commenting on other religions um, in, in a in a um, insulting way is I I, w- I would say is my my response would be the the faith I profess the testimony to it is always public, it is always public proclamation, even the messianic secrets and the miracles were for a group, the disciples. They were for the apostolic community to understand the kingdom in a different way, the power of God in a different way. So I do think it's a huge and important contrast in other religions. I think we're out of time. So um, next week, uh, we'll, I'll say more about this judgment and resurrection. <laughs> You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.